How a person responds to Jesus matters, and that is an understatement. How you respond to Jesus matters. In fact, it really matters. Everyone responds to Jesus in some way. How you respond to Jesus according to Jesus really matters. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue studying the gospel according to Matthew. And so we're going to hear three parables from Jesus regarding the wrong way to respond. And since I'm such a positive person, we'll end the service looking at another text, seeing the right way to respond, because I don't want to leave it on a bad note. But there are three parables in Matthew 21 and 22 where Jesus exposes or shows or demonstrates the wrong way or ways to respond to Jesus. And so we want to learn the wrong ways so that we're not part of doing it the wrong way, if you will. If you're just joining us, welcome. Glad you're here. It is our custom, it is our tradition as a church to normally be studying through a book of the Bible. And so right now we're in Matthew's gospel account, looking at Jesus, learning from Jesus, not only about who he is, but what he's promised and what he will do. And so we find ourselves this morning in chapter 21 and 22. And next week we'll pick it up where we left off today. And that's how we normally do things around here. Matthew 21 and 22, three striking parables that teach us something about the wrong way to respond to Jesus. One final note to kind of bring everybody up to speed. We're toward the end, okay? We don't need to get to chapter 28 to be toward the end. I mean, we're toward the end as in Jesus is in Jerusalem for the last time before he'll be crucified, It's Passover, a huge religious holiday in Israel. The people have filled Jerusalem. They're they're staying in uh, surrounding towns and cities because it's so full with people, maybe up to even a couple of million people, which wouldn't be normal in Jerusalem. Jesus has been welcomed by some and opposed by others. And based upon what he's going to say, from a human perspective, you can see why they want him crucified. Because he's really going to go after the religious leaders and expose them as fraudulent. And so you might want to buckle your seatbelts for this one. um, Because this is not the kind and gentler Jesus. This is the true Jesus. And he is sometimes kind and gentle. But he's not so kind and gentle in this passage. But he's truthful. Parable number one. The parable of two sons. Beginning in chapter 21 verse 28. Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. So the son says the wrong thing, right? But then he ends up doing the right thing. Interesting. Let's keep reading. And he went to the other son and said the same. He, the other son, answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So the first one says the wrong thing and then ends up doing the right thing. And the second one says the right thing but ends up doing the wrong thing. Hmm, what's all this about? Jesus then asks in verse 31, Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. So far, so good. Pretty simple, right? Well, Jesus continues to unpack the logic, and here's where you really want to brace yourself. 
This is quite the thing that Jesus is going to say. Verse 31 goes on to say, Jesus said to them, truly, that is earnestly, sincerely, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Wow. Mic drop, right? I mean, can you imagine he says this? This is highly offensive. This, this is an amazing thing to say to religious leaders in the nation of Israel. These are people who would have been Bible-carrying, Bible-memorizing, right? Associated with the right religion even. He's addressing the leaders of Israel and he says, the tax collectors, those who would sell their soul to make a dishonest buck, those are the tax collectors. Don't think IRS. Jews like Matthew, as a matter of fact, who dishonestly manipulate their people to make extra money. And prostitutes? The sexually deviant? These would be the kinds of people that those religious leaders would say, well, you know, at least I'm not like them. Sort of like we do today. We, we judge not based upon what God's standard is. We just know people who are worse offenders than us morally. And we say, well, at least I'm better than they are. When he says tax collectors and prostitutes, they would think those are the bad people you would name. Those are the last people in the world who would go into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus so offensively says, they'll get in before you get in. My question for you for now is, why, why would he say that? How could he say that? What's he up to? Then he says, verse 32, in 32, for John, that would be John the Baptist, we've learned about in chapter 3 and elsewhere, for John came to you, Israel, the people of Israel, the leaders and the nation came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. Now what does it mean for him to come in the way of righteousness? The word righteous has to do with law, it always has to do with law. So if you're righteous, you're somebody who keeps God's law. John came preaching God's law. He was a law preacher. And if you preach God's requirements, God's law, to people who are violators of God's law, it makes sense that you will then say things like John did, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You're not okay as you are. Something has to change. He was a preacher of righteousness. He came in the way of righteousness. He came warning the people of God's requirement. Why would he do that? Well, if we read Matthew as a whole, we would know that he would do that so that the people would be ready and they would know that they need righteousness. They need a righteous one. Jesus, Jesus is called elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus Christ, the righteous. They need a law keeper. They need help from the outside. They're not good enough in and of themselves because they memorize Bible verses as good as that is. They need to see their need and John was getting them ready for them to see their needs so they would look outside of themselves. They would look to a substitute, look to a savior, look to the one who's called Jesus. Remember chapter one, verse 21, he's called Jesus because he will save his people from their unrighteousness, from their sins. Oh, why would he say the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to get in before they get in? Well, at least prostitutes and tax collectors, and the list could go on, but he's just using them, at least they know they have a problem. 
at least they know they're sinners. At least as far as his rationale is going here. Not like the self-righteous leaders of Israel. If we go on and read in verse 32, we'll see these words. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, even when you saw them believing, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Religion can be an awful thing. Dare I say, even the right religion can be an awful thing. These guys are part of the right religion. The right God, the one true and living God, Yahweh. They carry the right book, if you will. They talk about Messiah. New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah is Christ. At least in label, we would call them, if we were Greek speakers, Christians. They're Messiahans because the people of Israel are waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Christ. So we just need to know that you can be a part of the right religion. You can be part of the wrong religion and be lost, obviously, but you could even be part of the right religion and hear Jesus say, you're clueless. You're, you're, you're not going to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty shocking. I hope it's shocking. Religion can be a terrible thing if we don't see our helplessness and our need for a Savior, it's a terrible thing. I don't often quote Karl Marx from the pulpit here. I have before. Um, Not a big fan. He's the one who infamously or famously, whichever one you'd prefer, said that religion is the opium of the people. I like the quote, but not the way he meant it. It can be an awful, terrible, damning drug because I'm part of the right religion. So I'm okay. I say I'm a Christian. I'm okay. I try to keep the commandments. So I'm okay. The problem is God requires perfect obedience to his commandments. And so I need a substitute who comes from outside of me to save me. So let's keep this in mind. We're, we're not in their same shoes. We're, we're in a different spot. But we could commit this a, a, a like kind of error. And Jesus says, this is not the right way to respond to me. They're responding in the wrong way. I haven't done it for a long time. I probably will never do it again. But I had the audacity on a Sunday morning one time to say, please raise your hand if... Um, how did I say it? Raise your hand if you've sinned enough today to be worthy of hell. Okay, I didn't ask you guys to do it. You're not following directions, so that's sin. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) And lots of people raised their hands because they understood what I was getting at. And I just remember one person doing the kind of thing. Now, maybe they didn't understand what I was getting at. But God's requirement, according to Jesus in another text, is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That includes perfect motives. I have to confess to you, I've never done that ever before in my life. Love God perfectly, as theologians would say, perpetually, personally. No, 
But sometimes we as Christians think that we're good and think that we don't sin. Now we're thankful for fruit and we're thankful for the new birth. We're thankful for changed lives. But to love God perfectly, not until glory will that happen. But when we think the wrong way about our sinful condition, we'll think, at least I'm not like those prostitutes. At least I'm not like those tax collectors. And in one sense, we can be thankful that we're not if we're not. But we have to realize that we need external righteousness credited to us, Christ's righteousness given to us, His obedience given to us, and His forgiveness that comes only through His atoning work. We have to have a Savior, not a coach, not a guide, or we're going to commit a similar error that Israel was committing. They didn't need Christ because they could do it on their own with a little help from God. They weren't... I won't say any more than that. And you could say, Amen. Keep it going, Pastor. Before we move on to the next parable, and it's going to be likewise hard-hitting, I do want to just make a couple of comments regarding our, our culture and something we at Omaha Bible Church should learn from Jesus and what He does here. It's not the thrust. It's not the intent. But let's do recognize and appreciate that Jesus has categories for moral and immoral. And we'd better have categories for moral and immoral. He does call out tax collectors as immoral. He does call out prostitutes as immoral. And we'd better remember that if we don't have a category for immoral, we don't need a savior. If we don't have categories for what sinful behavior is, we don't need to be saved from our sins. And we are tremendously tempted right about now in 21st century America to erase sinful categories. And if we erase sinful categories in the name of being relevant, we will no longer have a message because we don't need Christ if we don't have sin. And so let's keep this in mind. Jesus is clear about sin, whether it's the self-righteous or the person on the street, they both need Christ. They both need Christ. And so let's not succumb to the temptation that we're going to face and who knows what the costs will be. But one way to be irrelevant is to pursue relevance when it comes to this. I say this because of things that the Bible says and it says elsewhere. For example, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so let's be clear on that. And if we're clear on that, we can say, but there's hope for all kinds of sinners. Hope for all kinds of sinners. And such were some of you, see? But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So even gathering here like this today, today we come from all different kinds of sinful backgrounds. We're all different kinds of sinners. But we have to know that we're all different kinds of sinners or we'll never look outside of ourselves for God's perfect law keeper and Sin atoner. Let's move on to the next one. Next parable. Parable number two, the parable of the vine growers. 
Verse 33 says, hear another parable. Luke 20 tells us uh, about this parable that he not only is addressing the leaders, he's also addressing the people. So it's broader than leaders. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. It seems Jesus is purposely giving the details. In Pat's verbiage, it's a good setup, right? There's safety. You can have a lookout for maybe villains who might come, bad actors, or maybe a fire, some kind of danger. Everything is set. This is a good thing. And I want to emphasize that because we're going to see that this represents the father as he treats Israel. It's a good thing. He's provided wonderfully. Verse 34 says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. In other words, it, he's collecting rent. Okay, you, you, can, you can use the land, but you're going to give me some of the fruit, and that's payment. So far, so good. Easy to understand. Really simple. Seems like a really good setup, a really good scenario. 35 says, And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And right about there, we should be thinking, what, what, what in the world? That, how about, that's stupid. Are, are you out of your minds? Are you, are you crazy? Why, why, you have a good thing. You, you, you're out of, you're, it seems like a, it's almost like a dumb parable. I'm not saying Jesus is dumb. It's a dumb parable. And I think we should read it that way. Here's why. Because Israel, because he's addressing Israel in their response to Jesus is dumb. It's outlandishly dumb. It's crazy. What, what, in, what in the world are you thinking? God has been so kind and generous and gracious and, uh, and we're going to see throughout the ages he has been. For many ages, I should, I should say. And you, this is how you respond to his prophets? Like John? You killed him. This is how you respond to Jesus? They're going to kill him? This is, this is crazy. 36 says, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. That, that's crazy. Mark's gospel account says, and he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. Well, if you want to cross-reference... To, to interpret this a little bit in light of what Jesus says, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. In Matthew twenty three thirty seven, Jesus is about to say, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her." What you did to John and what you're about to do to me goes to form. This is a pattern. There's a long history here. Doesn't mean every Israelite did it. Doesn't mean there weren't faithful Israelites. But it's go, it goes to pattern. This is what you've been doing. First uh, Kings chapter eighteen, Jeremiah twenty six, Second Chronicles twenty four. I mean, they, they, they've they've had a history of doing this insane response to God's kindness and God's wonderful provisions and God's blessing, and they have had a pattern of oh, we love the prophets. Well, then why do you keep killing them? Oh, we love the prophets. Well, why, why do you not listen to them? Why do you persecute them? 
And Jesus is exposing the wrong way to respond to God, whether it be his prophets or ultimately, let's keep reading, parable gets worse before it gets worse. (laughs) 37, finally he sent his son to them. It was going there. Finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. That's reasonable. That's rational. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us worship and bow down and repent. That would be reasonable. That would be rational. But it doesn't say that. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. This is insane. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Maybe even because, I'm not, I wouldn't push this, but to make sure it's still sanctified land. So let's be religious about this. Let's take him out of the vineyard and kill him. Oh, religion can be such an amazing thing. (laughs) Verse 40 says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That that sounds reasonable. We're going to take it from you. We're not going to do this over. We're not going to keep doing this. We've done it long enough. And yes, I'm reading this in light of chapter 23. Long history of this. It's time to pivot and transition and we're going to do something different. But Jesus isn't done yet. Verse 42 says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Now there are a few things I never want to hear Jesus say. This is at least in my top five list. (laughs) Jesus is seemingly fond of saying it to the religious leaders, unfortunately for them. Have you never read the scriptures? Of course they've read the scriptures. They're expert in Bible. They've memorized the scriptures. They've missed the whole point, which is why Jesus really lets them have it. But what an insult. Have you never read the Bible? And then the irony gets better. It gets stranger, if you will. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So have you never read that scripture? Now, keep with me on this because this gets super interesting. Have you never read Psalm 118? The reason that's super interesting is because Psalm 118 is a Passover psalm. It's the last of a grouping of psalms that are considered the Passover psalms. It's Passover. So as the people would be entering into Israel, they would be singing Passover psalms like Psalm 118. It's a great psalm. It's just acknowledging God's great might and provision and grace and mercy. It's a great one. It's celebratory. And he says, if you never read Psalm 118, of course they've read it. They've just been singing it. But that's how spiritually blind they are. Don't you get it? He's saying. Don't you get it? Now, if we dig a little deeper, Psalm 118 talks about Israel being the cornerstone. Israel being this this unique cornerstone that's been rejected by the nations. 
The nations around them have opposed them. They've opposed Israel's God. And yet God supernaturally, it wasn't because there were lots of Israelites. It wasn't because they were smarter. It wasn't because uh, of those things. It's this small, insignificant group of people. And yet God has done great things. And the temple is there. The place where you go and meet with God. Cornerstone kind of talk. So if you just read this with the naked eye and we ignore where we are in our context. And you just read Psalm 118, you think, oh, Israel, unique. Now, there's a little bit of debate, I should tell you, whether or not the stone represents Israel or Israel's king. I don't think we need to fight about that. It could be either one. It could be actually sometimes the king represents the, represents the nation. But either way, Jewish scholars would have us to know, yeah, God's unique cornerstone, Israel and its king. Let's throw it in there. How could they be preserved? How could they be blessed? Because God is abundantly gracious and God is powerful. And Jesus says, haven't you ever read that before? And you know what he's about to do? He's about to point to the fact that he actually is the chief cornerstone. The ultimate chief cornerstone. If you're busy looking at yourselves thinking you're the ultimate endgame, you're doing it wrong. Ultimately, it's going to be the ultimate king, the ultimate Israelite king. To use other verbiage from Colossians or from Hebrews, we're moving from shadow, anticipation, figures, to substance. They were the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. One commentator, this is D.A. Carson in his helpful commentary on Matthew. The psalm concerns Israel. The nation was despised and threatened on all sides, but God made it the capstone. Jesus who, big word, but important word, Jesus who recapitulates Israel. Think, and then Carson cites chapter 2, verse 15, out of Egypt I've called my son, which is originally about the nation, and then it's applied to Jesus. Jesus who recapitulates Israel and is the true center of Israel receives similar treatment from his opponents, but God vindicates him find that very, very, very fascinating. Also, maybe before we move on, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, talk about the people when Jesus does what we call the triumphal entry. They're singing lyrics from Psalm 118. There's a lot going on here. Makes me want to study Psalm 118 more in light of this. Really fascinating. The wrong response to Jesus is to conclude that all of the types and shadows that were to point to him are better than him. <laughs> to miss the whole point is the wrong way to respond to him. And they're getting PhDs at this point in time, missing the whole point. Verse 42 goes on to say, this was the Lord's doing. Oh, he's still quoting the psalm. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Yeah, Psalm 118. How could God preserve this little group of people and make them great? The Lord's marvelous doing. It had to be the Lord who did this. Well, what about this one born in Bethlehem? Uh, grew up in Nowheresville, Nazareth? How could any good thing come from Nazareth? How, how could he be the Savior of the world? It's the Lord's marvelous doing for him to be that one. Counterintuitive, it makes it marvelous. Well, I hope you found the Psalm 118 consideration at least 
one-tenth as interesting as I did. I love learning new things. Okay, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's quite a statement. It, it hearkens my mind back to what Jesus just did when he cursed the fig tree uh, that wasn't bearing any figs. The fig tree representing the nation. There is a pivot happening here. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So please, please know it, it, it's, it's, it's not okay to reject him. It's not okay to reject Christ. It leads to a form of judgment, this crushing aspect here. There's the positive and negative of the, of the stone. The stone represents temple, if you will, where you go and meet with God. Truly and genuinely, Jesus calls himself the temple in John 2. And yet, when you reject God's means of meeting with his people, there's a judgment aspect of crushing. It's quite, it's quite sobering. It might not be the Jesus we learned about growing up. But I like to remind you, Jesus isn't the strong, silent type. Jesus doesn't do a bunch of actions and then say, now, you can interpret this however you'd like to. I'm glad he doesn't do that. I'm glad he does great things and he speaks and therefore interprets the meaning. I'm glad he does that because in one sense, it's an act of mercy toward these people. At least they know they're way off base. And apart from repentance and trusting in him, it means judgment. Well, that, that's a kindness, even though it might not sound like it to our sensitive ears. I'm glad to know this as well because I want to know and have a category in my mind, in my thinking, in my Christian living that there is such a thing as religious leaders who are part of the right religion who aren't bound for heaven. As the old spiritual went, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Jesus is making that clear. So I, I want to know this. And again, we might think, well, I, 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 that, he sounds too judgmental. Well... If he's the true Jesus, I, I, I want to hear what he has to say about everything. And be good with it. Maybe I'm offended first. But if I, at least I can know I have a problem so that I can look to him for solution. Well, let's then hear him close out this parable where he says, and although, this is verse 46, they were seeking to arrest him, it says, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Parable number three. We'll go fast, I promise. It's 14 verses, but it almost preaches itself. And so the parable of the wedding feast, and it does stand out a little bit differently than the other ones. So this is chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Here we go, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So that seems kind of strange, kind of weird. As it would be in the ancient world, as we will see, you'd send the invitation out, and here's what we're going to do. The party is planned. And once everything is ready, then we'll tell you again. 
So there won't be a group text. <laughs> but once everything is ready, then we're going to come out and then we'll tell you, okay, it's now time. So plan ahead and then come. Okay, then it says in verse 4, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. So the initial invitation went out. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And how great would that be? It would be wonderful. You're going to show respect to the king. And if it's a true king, a righteous king, you'd want to show respect. So we're going to do that. Plus, you get to go to the wedding feast. It's a, it's a, it's an honor. It's a, it's a privilege. It's a joy. That's what we should be expecting. And then it says in verse 5, but they paid no attention. What? Here we go again. That's dumb. That's insane. They paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business. That's crazy. Well, you want to talk about crazy. How about verse 6? While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. I mean, it doesn't get more convoluted, backward, perverse spiritually than that. Well, he's speaking in physical terms, so we're not to the spiritual yet, but, but see, that's the point. That's the point. For Messiah to come and to be the one who would save his people from their sins. Proving it again and again and again by his power demonstrated, by his teaching, raising the dead, all of the things he's proven to do before their very eyes. And for them to reject him is crazy. Then verse 7 says, the king was angry. The New American Standard Translation says, enraged. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city signifies judgment. Judgment comes when you don't respond rightly. Then verse 8 says, then he said to his servants, this, t- this takes a super interesting twist. You don't want to miss this. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So now we're going to go to the highways and byways, we might say, and you just, you just invite, invite anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter how low they are when it comes to, it doesn't matter who they are. Just invite them. Even if they're never the kind of person you would normally think to invite. I think he's making himself clear. Verse 10 says, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good, seemingly, right? Fitting and unfitting. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And here's where it takes an unexpected turn. So they were invited and they came. So far, so good. Seems real positive. I think it is real positive. Verse 11 says, though, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. What do you suppose that means? He came, but he didn't come as he was told to come. And when he's confronted about it, he has no objection like nobody told me, or it wasn't clear. He's speechless, which is important. He has no objection. He just came on his own terms. 
he was invited and he showed a positive response. So far, so good. But he did it his way. And Jesus is not pointing this out as a positive. He is about ready to point it out as a negative. So this is a good wake-up call for me. Yes, I want to respond to Jesus. But I also need to know I want to respond to Jesus the way I'm told to respond. Because look what he says. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. That's what I say to that. Huh. There was a positive response. But it wasn't the right response. I think we should think about this. Why is Jesus teaching this? And even talking about hell. Well, probably in the greater context because he's addressing people who would be, if you're using Greek terminology, brought over into English, professing Christians. They're professing Messiahans. Part of the right religion. And he's saying, but they're lost. They responded even positively, but not according to instruction. And I don't think Jesus is being a legalist here. And I don't think he's being nitpicky. He's being truthful, kind, generous, merciful to let you know ahead of time you should pay attention to, yes, responding to Jesus in a positive way, but what does that mean? And let's end on a positive. If we looked elsewhere in Matthew's gospel account about the right way to respond, because right here he's just talking about all the wrong ways to respond. It's going to lead to the cross. But we've heard the right way to respond to Jesus elsewhere in our study of Matthew's gospel account. Listen, listen to these great setup words to set up the context about the right way to come to Christ. Jesus says elsewhere, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And I'm going to rudely interrupt for a second and, and, and just remark and say, that, that's amazing. That's exclusive. No one knows the Father except the Son. Doesn't sound like the gospel yet. Doesn't sound like good news. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. He's in this unique, exclusive position. But I love it what it goes on to say. I love what it goes on to say. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And that's a gracious and. And I'm so thankful for that. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, now we're getting some traction. And now, the words that you know well if you've been a Christian very long at all. It's in that setting though, it's in that context that Jesus goes on to say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
And he goes on to talk about rest for your soul. So not just physical rest. Rest for your soul. What's the right response to Christ? It's to go to Him for rest. Because He and He alone knows the Father and the Father knows Him. And He ands us. If we come to Him, we too can know God in the right way. And He gives us rest. Sabbath. The right way to come to Christ is to come to Him for spiritual rest because He's the Savior. He does the hard work. We do none of the work. We rest in Him. I love the imagery that He uses. Come to me who are weary and heavy burdened. What would cause you to be spiritually weary and heavy burdened? Two things in particular. In the positive, God's requirements. As sons and daughters spiritually of Adam, God's requirements of love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love neighbor as yourself. It's a burden I can't bear. I can't do it. But then there, that's the positive. Then there's the negative because then sinful men and women, especially religious leaders, but not only religious leaders, add extra laws to God's pure law We call it legalism and talk about heavy burdened. I can't do this. And now you've given me more to do, Mr. and Mrs. Pharisee. So where do we get hope? Where do we get rest? Where do we turn? We turn to him, our Sabbath, our rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you. We talk about salvation being a gift for good reason. It's for good reason the Apostle Paul talks that way. Because he will give you rest. It's free to us who come to him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I want you to know that the reason it's rest for I exhale when I rest. It's wonderful. I don't have to do anything. I'm resting. It's restful to us because it was work for him. A whole life of perfect, perpetual, personal obedience to the requirements of God. Then he went to Calvary and was treated as if he were a lawbreaker, not a lawkeeper. And he made atonement. He made satisfaction. He satisfied God's justice, his wrath. And it was perfectly done because he said it's done. And not only that, he was raised from the dead, proving, authenticating that he actually really did all the right things and he made perfect atonement for all the wrong things. That any of us who would ever believe in him committed. It's why we call it gospel. It's good news. The right way to come to Christ is to see him as the one who does it all and to see him as your rest. It's counterintuitive to religious people. But God is gracious. Trust in him. It matters more than anything else. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for hard words from Jesus. We're thankful for a Savior who wasn't trying to get elected by telling people what they wanted to hear. We're thankful that Jesus is the truthful Savior, so much so he is called the truth. 
and we're thankful that salvation rest is found in him. May all who hear these words find themselves seeing themselves as sinful and needing a Savior in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.